Welcome to Founders of the Nations, a podcast exploring the countries of the world by learning about the lives of their founders. Episode 2, Andorra. Andorra is the smallest nation that we'll cover in the AIDS. It's about 15 miles wide and 12 miles long. That's about six times smaller than Rhode Island, the smallest state in the USA. It has seven parishes. Louisiana, you know about that. Those are basically like counties. Andorra is situated on the border of France and Spain, nestled in the Pyrenees Mountains there. It has been a semi-independent and then independent country since the time of Charlemagne, near the turn of the 9th century AD. It's basically made up of two branches of the Valera River, which flow together to create the main Valera River near the center of Andorra. These two branches and then the main river help create three narrow valleys in between the mountains that define the countryside. One interesting thing I found about all these valleys is they all face in different directions, and the mountains are so high that each valley kind of has its own microclimate. So even though it's a small country, it does have a lot of different things to see. So then, how did this country somehow on the border of two other countries even begin? Why there? How did it survive? Well, these questions and more will be answered right after I give you some historical background, which I hope you care about. One other thing before we get started, there are maps on the website at langforlife.com founders. I would recommend you check them out before or after listening to the podcast to understand a little better what's going on. Please don't look at those while driving cars, trucks, trains, or anything else that requires your attention. On with the story of Andorra's founding. It's the 8th century AD, and the Umayyad Caliphate has recently moved across from Africa into Spain. The Umayyads have reached Spain are commonly called the Moors, so that's what I'll be calling them for the most part. They own the area we know of as Spain, and have even reached across the Pyrenees, those mountains in between France and Spain, remember, uh, into southern France, where they control a full half of France's southern coast on the Mediterranean there. When the Moors first pushed into Upper Spain, many of the Christian peasants who lived near the Pyrenees sought refuge in the mountains. This is kind of the time when it's considered that most of the people who are going to be Andorans moved into those mountain valleys. Meanwhile, in the area that we know of as modern-day France, the Franks have a stronghold on things. They had been ruled by the Merovingian kings for a while, and now they were really weakening and a new dynasty was coming along. And one of the kings of that dynasty was named Charlemagne, and he will play the pivotal role in our podcast today. So let's get a little background on what's going on before he got to the throne and then talk about how he helped Andorra find its nationhood. Charles's father and grandfather had been leaders of the Franks. His grandfather, Charles Martel, Martel means the hammer, was an illegitimate son of the mayor of Austrasia, which is basically northeastern France. The mayor of Austrasia at that time was nominally a mayor ruling under the Merovingian kings, which was the first Frankish dynasty. But in reality, they were really the ruler of their area of the Franks. Each of the mayors at that time really was the ruler. 
Uh, when Martel's father died, Martel fought and defeated the coalition of his father's former subjects who wanted the legitimate child heir to be on the throne. So he was able to maintain control there after his father died. Martel immediately began enlarging Austrasian territory and was able to take over pretty much the whole of northern France before long. He would eventually take over all but the southeastern part of modern-day France. It was southwestern France, though, and the Moors that we are most interested in, so that's what we'll focus on today. The Moors had been fighting with the Duchy of Aquitaine in southwestern France for a while. The Duchy won a few early battles, but eventually was defeated and pushed back. In 732, the Duke of Aquitaine asked for help from Martel as the Moors pushed him all the way back into central France. Martel was excited to have this excuse to march in. Martel quick marched his men across France to near Tours in modern-day France, and he soundly defeated the Moors there. The location of this battle would mark the high water point for the Moorish expansion into Europe, and they would slowly be pushed back towards and then over the Pyrenees from here on. Martel did many other things and is considered the father of Charlemagne's dynasty, the Carolingian dynasty. But we need to get to Charlemagne, so let's keep moving. After Charles Martel came Pippin III, or Pippin the Short. Pippin was the first in this line to take the actual name King of the Franks. He fostered a close relationship with the Pope, helping him fight against the Lombards, who were people in the southeastern corner of France. And he also gifted the Pope land, which would go on to become the Papal States, a kingdom ruled by the Pope. Pepin spent most of his time attempting to subdue the lands that his father had conquered, especially in Aquitaine, which, remember, southwest France. In 752, he was able to put the final Moorish stronghold in France to siege. The stronghold was called Narbonne, and it was located on the Mediterranean Sea. The siege lasted seven years. But finally the city surrendered in 759, and Moorish control in France was broken from then on. He did many other things we could talk about, but again, we need to continue on to Charlemagne. So Charlemagne was born the eldest and possibly illegitimate son of Pepin III and his wife. Uh, it seems like there's some thought that he was born before Pepin III married his wife sometime in their betrothed period. He participated in many battles with his father growing up, right up until his father died in 768. Charlemagne and his brother Carloman were elevated to joint kingship, but Carloman died soon after in 771 of apparently natural causes, and Charlemagne went on to become a legend. Charlemagne finished subduing the peoples in Aquitaine and finally incorporated them fully into this Frankish kingdom. This is what put him into direct contact with the Moors, as we said before. And it would lead to the campaign that would launch Andorra into statehood. He would go on not only to subdue Aquitaine, he would go on to subdue many of his people's rivals, defeating the Saxons in the north, the Lombards in the south, as well as many others. And he would eventually hold basically all of Europe, west of Poland and the Balkans, and north of Barcelona in Spain including even a large chunk of Italy. On the way, he was given many titles, King of the Franks, King of the Lombards, Emperor of the Romans, and finally Emperor of the Carolingian Dynasty. 
he is considered the most important European monarch or emperor of this period, not only for his military conquests mentioned before, but also for reforms he made domestically. He made economic, religious, and educational reforms that really changed Europe. One example is his emphasis on reading and books. Under his care, a massive copying of older, especially Latin, manuscripts was done. This cannot be overstated. Many of our surviving Latin manuscripts can be traced directly back to these Carolingian Empire manuscripts. Without these, our modern-day look into Roman times would be even more limited than it is. During the course of all this copying, the Carolingian scribes also came up with a new way of writing called the Carolingian Minuscule, which was basically a way in which you could write Latin faster and easier using a smaller kind of writing style. Along with all this copying of the classics and re-looking at all these things came what's considered the first real European Renaissance. There were three of those overall, and the last one being the, the big one that we all know as the Renaissance. Well, during the Renaissance, they actually mistook this Carolingian minuscule writing style for Latin. And this became the basis for the Renaissance's humanistic minuscule, their own kind of writing style, rather than Latin. And that would become very important, because as you know, the Renaissance had lots of writing to do. And using that as their main way of writing led to it becoming the Roman typeface once printing presses were around. And that led to something called Times New Roman, which we use nowadays. So, there's that. Because of Charlemagne's Renaissance man-like qualities, kind of being good at everything, he was seen as one of the chief models of chivalry throughout the Middle Ages. So while the Carolingian Empire would only last about 88 years, it would have a profound cultural effect on Europe throughout the Middle Ages, but also into today. Many historians believe that it was at this time that the idea of what we think of as Europe today really came into shape with Charlemagne's work putting his empire together. I found all this pretty surprising because I, I don't remember really learning much of anything about Charlemagne growing up. When I saw his name, it kind of rung a few bells, but there was nothing that I knew about him. Did y'all's history classes teach any more about him, or was it just me? Anyways, back to Andorra. During the course of all of his conquering and reforming, the Umayyad Caliphate, which owned a large part of the Middle East and Northern Africa at this time, had lost control of its Spanish holdings to a Muslim rebellion, and it was now mostly owned by the Emir of Cordoba, an independent Muslim nation. Only the northwest corner of Spain still remained in their hands, and the leader of that came to Charlemagne's court in 777, looking for help and pledging to become a vassal if Charlemagne was able to help him defeat the Emir of Cordoba. Well, Charlemagne thought this was a great idea to at least stop the Moorish raids, if not expand and take over Spain. So, in 778, he launched a campaign across the Pyrenees. He first defeated the Basques, an independent people living in the western Pyrenees, and burned their capital to the ground. Then his army scored a few victories on the battlefield and pushed the Moors back a bit. But somewhere in there, he lost a battle and started heading back into Frankish territory. Now, I couldn't find a lot of detail on this campaign, and that's why I'm using kind of vague language here. But we know the general idea of what was going on. So, while he was heading back into Frankish territory, 
the Basques, who apparently didn't care for the burning of their capital, tipped this campaign into a disaster. While the Frankish army was moving back through the Pyrenees, the Basques ambushed them, and Charlemagne lost many high-ranking officers and most of his rear guard. This first campaign is considered one of the first points where Andorra may have gotten its start. As Charlemagne's armies marched across the Pyrenees, the people living in the valleys there may have volunteered to guide his soldiers through the Pyrenees, or maybe they even volunteered to join him in his campaign. In exchange for this, he declared them an independent city under his protection. Another important note about this ambush in the mountains was that it actually spawned a famous 11th century poem called the Song of Roland. It was 4,000 lines of verse, and it basically turned this ambush and the campaign in general into this epic campaign between good, the Franks, and bad, the Moors. Of course, you're probably thinking, wait, they weren't fighting the Moors there, they were fighting the Basques. Well, yeah, but epic stories don't often need to stick with the truth. It sounds much better to say they were fighting this epic struggle between Christianity and Islam rather than to say he burned their hometown, so they decided to kill him while he was in the valley. So this epic poem is considered something like the French version of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. So this campaign actually ends up being very famous and especially this battle. And even today you can look up the Song of Roland and see how it really uh, affected Frankish culture and eventually French culture. Anyways, after the Frankish army pulled out of Spain, the Moors marched back in on the Spanish side of the Pyrenees and pretty much got back to normal. Charlemagne was at least able to set up a thin bit of buffer zone between Frankish territory proper and the Moors to keep out the raiders. Uh, These buffer zones were things that he kind of set up all around his kingdom, and they were called marches. And basically, anywhere where there was a country or state nearby that needed some space, he would set one up. And it seems like this was where, especially Andorra and other small city-states like it, would be kind of commissioned in the Pyrenees Mountains as these fortifications to stop or slow down raiding parties and armies coming from Spain. Well, so as his sons grew up, Charlemagne sent each of them to grow up in the territory he wanted them to be king over, so that they would be able to govern their locations well when they were older. And this is how Louis the Pious ended up in the Spanish March, as it was his assigned domain. This Louis is where the more official version of the founding story comes in. Louis, as governor, won a great victory against the Moors at the place where the Valera River forks. Remember, that was the river kind of in the middle of Andorra. And after the battle, he named the country Indor, and Indor became Andorra. So he officially made it a self-governing state, settled some of his men there, and demanded as yearly tribute... A herring! We shall do no such thing. Oh, please. Well, it didn't happen quite like that. But he did ask for two trout, and I couldn't help but think about the herring. Apparently, the Valera River was famous even back then for trout fishing, and he enjoyed it. But I digress. Back to the Andorans. Now, it's very possible that his father was the one who started Andorra, and then he kind of made it more official. It's also possible that one of them did and the other didn't. It's also possible that this is just a story that they made up. But 
And we do definitely see stories about Andorra in official writing not long after this. So we know something happened around this time. And this is a very reasonable story about how it got started, because we know that this was what the Carolingian dynasty was doing on their borders at this time. And uh, you can even hear about this, Charlemagne starting the nation and Andorra's national anthem, which you can listen to. I'll stick a link to it in the podcast notes. Now, like I said earlier, Andorra was kind of like a guard city in the Pyrenees. So that wasn't really the greatest position to be in at first. But thankfully for the Andorans, after Louis' victory, he went on to push the Moors all the way back to the Urba River. But unlike his father, he was able to stick there and actually widen the march out up to that river, basically, during his lifetime. Now, there are a lot of interesting things about Andorra that are outside the purview of this podcast. I would recommend you check those out, but I'm trying to just focus on foundings here. So uh, a few of those, just to mention real fast, are that it's actually a diarchy instead of a monarchy with one prince from Spain and another from France. And this has kind of existed since basically somewhere in the 11th century all the way up to today. Now, not to say that they're ruled by princes, but their princes are one from Spain and one from France. Uh, after doing some digging around, I found that it seems like this might actually be one of the oldest governments in continuous use in the world up to this point. Uh, of course, there are many old countries that are older than this, but they've changed governments so many times. Uh, while Andorra has maintained this kind of diarchy since about the 11th century. If you want to know more about Charlemagne or Andorra, there are lots of books and podcasts and other things available to do that. I read the Carolingian Chronicles, which is a compilation of different sources kind of set next to each other so that you can read them all chronologically. There are also a lot of podcasts out there. I'll link to those in my podcast intros mini episode that goes along with this one. I'll have some samples of what each podcast sounds like, and you can go check them out. There's also a metal CD done by Christopher Lee about his ancient ancestor, Charlemagne. Uh, you can definitely find that on YouTube. And that's where we'll end today's episode. Andorra would end up outlasting its mother empire and would pretty much stay in one piece from this point on. It's really a pretty astonishingly long history for any country, let alone a tiny one on the border between two larger countries. Now, I will be doing some extra at the end. I'll have a little bit on what we can learn from the life of Charlemagne, or at least what I learned, and then some of an almost founding father of the newer kingdom of Andorra. So stick around for that if you want to hear a story from the 20th century. If not, no worries. If you enjoy what's happening here, message me at the website, on Facebook, or email me at info at langforlife.com. I'm also on Twitter. Or if you have some extra change lying around and you want to throw it at the making of this podcast, please don't let me stop you. I am on Patreon. Founders of Nations is what you can look for there. Anyways, off we go with overtime. It's not overly long today. Well, what did I learn and what do I think we can learn from Charlemagne's life? Well, obviously there's a lot. He was pretty much like a Renaissance man. Now, there are dangers to doing things like that. You can definitely spread yourself too thin. But I think he had a really good balance of not 
getting too obsessed with one thing and also not getting too spread out among many things. Well, of course, that's an important part of balancing life. It's easy for us to get obsessed and obsess on one thing, maybe like producing a podcast, or to just spread yourself too thin and try to do everything at once. But finding a balance where we are able to put our efforts towards what we need to do and also not neglect other things is very important. And it does seem like Charlemagne was pretty well able to do that in his empire. I don't know anything about his family life. We don't know much about that. But uh, I'm sure family life was very different back then anyway. So who can know? But definitely find the right balance of things going on in your life. The second thing that I learned was really that working for the future produces such better results than just trying to survive right now. His pushes for education reform were really things that were going to not have any effects for a long time, but he still was committed to it. And, you know, the, the copying of manuscripts, not really something that's going to affect right now at this very moment. Now, of course, it's not like all this stuff was for some future generation only. It would come into play later on in his reign, but he definitely wasn't just focused on right now. And I think that's one uh, problem that our kind of free election governments can have is that we're always trying to push for right now politically and trying to make sure that we make people happy so that they'll vote for us right now. And uh, of course, I think there's not really much of a better way, but this is the danger of having voting very often is that we do get a more narrow focus on the right now and often neglect the things that have to do with longer term planning. Anyways, what do you think? You agree? Disagree? Have anything else you want to learn from Charlemagne? Send me a message. Tell me what you think. All right. So let's talk about Boris Skasirif. He was a, I have no idea about these names, mind you. He was a Russian adventurer and all around scallywag, born in 1894 and dying in 1989, the ripe old age of 93. During his lifetime on one of his adventures, he was led into Andorra where in 1934, he started meeting with peasants and normal people and then presented a list of important suggestions to the local government officials, along with his intention to reign over them as king. The government officials did not seem overly amused by this, and he was forced into self-described exile, living in a hotel about three miles from Andorra, where he acted like an exiled monarch, giving interviews to many international newspapers. While there, he also wrote a new constitution for Andorra and distributed thousands of copies of it. In this constitution, he would, among other things, turn Andorra into a tax haven to encourage investment into the country. According to legend, he organized around 500 volunteers and led them into Andorra, where the Grand Council of Andorra apparently voted to accept him as king, with only one of the Grand Council saying no. This lasted about two weeks, until three constables from the Spanish Civil Guard were brought in and arrested him. Now, the other, more official story says that he didn't garner as much support and was stopped trying to enter Andorra by a guard at the border and arrested. But who can be sure? I can tell you, though, that Andorra has had trouble with other European states to this day because their taxes are so very low. So, 
maybe they took some advice from him. Maybe he was onto something. All right. Anyways, that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again for coming. See you next time on Founders of Nations. Founders of Nations.